From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Some call long COVID the next public health disaster. I had full body tremors, so I was shaking so bad I couldn't walk. I couldn't bathe myself. I was bedridden, and I never got better. It's like it knocked me down to a new baseline, and that's just how I had to live my life. Doctors turn to an unexpected condition for answers, concussions. We'll get the latest long COVID research, plus an update on other seasonal viruses like the flu and RSV, and what to expect as the holidays arrive. Then, from a high-tech thriller about genetic manipulation to efforts to maintain wild mustangs, we'll share gift-giving book ideas, all with Colorado or Western ties. It's time to part ways with your beloved car, but you want it to go somewhere it'll truly be appreciated. So donate it to CPR. Instead of sitting and gathering dust, your tax-deductible car donation will fuel Colorado Public Radio. You love your old car. Now let it bring you the programs you love. It's so easy and convenient to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Researchers are still trying to understand long COVID. That is, people who have COVID but struggle with persistent symptoms long after they should feel better. And three years into the pandemic, there are more questions than answers. Here's CPR health reporter John Daly. Inside a nondescript suburban office building, a woman named Alex Trebino stands on a blue balance board. Across from her is physical therapist Dan Stute. When you catch it with your right hand, I want you to tell me a musician. When you catch with your left hand, I want you to tell me a president. This is a brain game. He starts bouncing tennis balls her way. Taylor Swift <laughs> and George Washington. The first time you did this, was it hard? Oh, yeah. It was hard because for many months, Trebino has suffered from a severe case of long COVID. And the first time we did this, there was not multiple hands with categories or multiple balls. It was one ball at a time and just throw it back. Trebino first caught COVID early in the pandemic. She had fatigue, migraines, and a relentless brain fog Bad enough, she eventually resigned her job as a management consultant. Then last year, a second bout of COVID set back the 30-year-old even further. I had full body tremors, so I was shaking so bad I couldn't walk. Uh, I couldn't bathe myself. I couldn't cook anymore. I was bedridden, and I never got better. It's like it knocked me down to a new baseline, and that's just how I had to live my life. Doctors struggled to figure out how to treat Trebino, who has made progress through this physical therapy involving brain games. It's part of a University of Denver study, one of countless efforts globally to understand and treat long COVID. Even as that work ramps up, no one can say just how many Coloradans suffer from it. I think it's very large numbers. That's Dr. Sarah Jolly, a researcher with CU Anschutz, one site of a national study looking at recovery after COVID. 
One U.S. survey estimated one in five who catch the virus develop long COVID. The state has reported 1.7 million total COVID-19 cases. That doesn't include most home rapid tests. So potentially, Jolly says. You're looking at half a million or more Coloradans that could be experiencing symptoms after COVID that are prolonged. But no one seems to know for sure, not health systems and not the state, which is not compiling data on long COVID. State epidemiologist Dr. Rachel Herlihy says it's much more challenging to track than individual cases identified by a positive test result. Plus, she says... There's no universally agreed upon definition of long COVID. With long COVID, there's much more complexity in diagnosing it. And once it's diagnosed, how can patients be treated? Colorado researchers are zeroing in on part of the puzzle, the brain. DU's Bradley Davidson is director of the Human Dynamics Lab. So in the Human Dynamics Lab, we measure human movement. And so uh, my expertise is understanding how people move, and why. When the pandemic hit, Davidson and his colleagues had an aha moment. It seemed like a constellation of familiar long COVID symptoms, things related to sleep, fatigue, memory, and emotions, resembled those of a high-profile kind of injury. We had that. Whoa, this looks very similar to concussion. Concussion, a traumatic brain injury that affects brain function. Davidson and his team wondered if they could examine motor control, motor skills, how movement is affected by COVID-19, and could they find promising ways to help patients. If having COVID and now having long COVID is like having a chronic brain injury, we could treat long COVID the same way that we treat post-concussive syndrome. That involves studying eye movement along with head movement, which he says traditionally could indicate a problem with the brain that his team has found is treatable by rehabilitation therapy. This time what I want you to do, Alex, is I'm going to have your head going up and down. That includes brain games like the ones at which long hauler Alex Trebino is getting better and better. It's definitely gotten easier to do. I'll say that. Physical therapist Dan Stute says so far the research shows this kind of therapy involving things like balance, movement, memory, and tracking objects with your eyes seems to help. So he can tell patients. There's actually some things you can be working on that should have good, you know, functional outcomes for you. That's given hope to Trebino. She says she's seen improvements thanks to her work in physical therapy. I would say at my lowest, I was 5% on a good day. I'd say now I'm somewhere between 25 and 30%. There's still a long way to go. And there's still a long way to go for many other Coloradans like Ana Rodriguez from Thornton and Clarence Troutman of Denver. I met them on a cool, cloudy day in a park in northwest Denver. They didn't know each other before COVID-19 hit. Well, we bonded. I feel like we bonded just through our experiences. We're in touch. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, we're in touch. Both caught it and were sick enough to be hospitalized. They became friends through a support group after they were released. Rodriguez says more than two years later, her post-COVID symptoms include fatigue, brain fog, depression, anxiety, and PTSD. But the worst symptom is in her hands and feet. And they feel like they're on fire. Neuropathy, a weakness, numbness, or pain from nerve damage. Rodriguez, a mom of three adult kids, says her skin can feel like it might burst. If you look at it, my hands aren't swollen, but they feel so swollen 
that they hurt. So far, she hasn't found any satisfying treatment for that pain. For Troutman, physical therapy helped him deal with his shortness of breath and get back some stamina, but he still grapples with persistent brain fog and difficulty concentrating. I have a lot of trouble reading now, especially anything that's an article longer than maybe a paragraph. Troutman was a broadband technician with CenturyLink for 37 years. He caught the virus at the start of the pandemic, was hospitalized and on a ventilator for a time, and ended up staying two months. Two-plus years later, he says the fight goes on. Both he and Rodriguez say they hope future breakthroughs in research and treatment will bring some relief. To live with pain every day is a struggle. It's gotten better, but it's still there. So I have to learn how to deal with it. This is a new norm. It's real. Uh, (laughs) Once you're out of the hospital, it's not over. You know, uh, you're still dealing with a lot of things over a long period of time. Like many long haulers, they're learning to deal with it. And with the pandemic grinding on, the number of Coloradans coping with long COVID just keeps growing. CPR's John Daly is with us now in the studio to talk a bit more about long COVID. We'll also talk about concerns that several viruses, COVID, the flu, and RSV, could spread during the upcoming holidays. And John, welcome. Hi, Andrea. It strikes me that many of us have moved on from the pandemic, but your story is a reminder that COVID's serious. It's not necessarily just a week in bed. We know some people die from it, but it can also mean a long road to recovery. You've been covering this for three years now. Have people become too complacent? I think they have. It's been a long three years, but I think the stories of those who suffer from long covid should be a wake-up call for everyone, and uh, it should also remind us that there are mysteries, and long COVID has kind of brought those to the surface. There's still a lot that we don't know. And your piece gave some examples, but it sounds like it's really hard to pin down the symptoms. Is there an official list? Well, I went to the CDC website, and it lists a startling array of nearly 20 symptoms, including Fatigue, fever, shortness of breath, cough, chest pain, difficulty thinking or concentrating, and that's referred to as brain fog, uh, headache, sleep problems, lightheadedness, depression, change in smell or taste. The list even includes diarrhea and changes in menstrual cycles. I mean, that's clearly part of the reason why it's just so hard to diagnose. Yeah, for sure. It's also hard to track because different health groups define it differently and there's differences in the data. And I've heard it described as like an umbrella or constellation of symptoms that vary in number and severity. And also, you know, COVID is new and it takes science time to figure things out. So what kind of treatments are available or what kind of treatments work? Well, there's physical therapy and cognitive rehab, like you heard about in my story. Standard medications or treatments are being used uh, for symptoms like gastrointestinal issues or headaches. There's also things like breathing exercises. But really, a lot more research needs to be done to see what works best. Let's turn to general COVID. The last two winters, we saw big spikes of COVID infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. What's the picture right now? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. COVID-19 hospitalizations had been rising for nearly two months, and it looked like we might have another big wave building like the last two winters. But the number dipped below 400 last week and stayed there in the latest numbers released yesterday. So hopefully, uh, you know, knock on wood, uh, maybe there isn't a big wave building, but, you know, we'll just have to see. So that's hospitalizations. What do we know about actual cases and how much the virus is circulating now? Well, you know, the positivity rate, the rate of positive tests is in the double digits. Uh, That doesn't include most home rapid tests, and many people aren't even testing now, although the Biden administration is now going to start sending out tests again. Right. Uh, Also, you know, the latest variants are super transmissible, so I think it's safe to assume there's a lot of virus circulating right now. And it's not just COVID that's making people sick. Uh, Cases of the flu have also been spiking lately. That's right. Yeah, no rest for the wary, right? A, A lot of patients are showing up in outpatient clinics and emergency departments with influenza-like symptoms. Dr. Eric France, the state's chief medical officer, says the triple-demic of COVID, RSV, and flu is clearly here. Influenza is still riding high and going up, and this is probably the highest numbers of flu illness that we've seen in the last 10 years. Okay, let's turn to RSV. We're hearing a lot about people being infected this year, more than we have before. What is it? You know, it's a virus that can be really serious for very young and older people, and it can be fatal. It arrived earlier this year than usual and in high numbers. Here's Suchitra Rao describing the symptoms. She's an infectious disease specialist and doctor at Children's Hospital Colorado. The way that it usually infects humans is that it starts just by invading those upper airways. So you initially might get cold-like symptoms like a runny nose, sore throat, that sort of thing. And that's what we typically see with with our adults. But then what can happen is that uh, with babies who have generally smaller airways, that it's very easy for it to then cause problems down in that lower respiratory tract. And that can manifest with airway swelling as well as those plugging of secretions. And it can cause something um, that's called bronchiolitis, where you get that inflammation of the airways, thick secretions, and then that leads on to difficulty breathing. Why has RSV and the flu, why have they been so prevalent this year? Well, it's not really clear for sure, but Dr. Rao says our immunity may just not be what it used to be. And you can trace that back to the pandemic, two years of isolation and mask wearing have meant people's immune systems are really vulnerable. Uh, The last few seasons of flu and other viruses were very mild. And now it's clear they are coming back in a big way. With RSV, what are the signs that a toddler or baby might be in distress? Dr. Rao says parents should look for certain clues. Some of those warning signs are going to be if they note that a child is breathing faster than usual, looks like they're having trouble getting air in, or are using some of their additional, what we call accessory muscles to help them breathe. So what that can look like is using your neck muscles, using your abdominal muscles, or seeing the um, space between your rib cage sucking in. Those are signs of sort of respiratory distress or increased work of breathing. And so that is a, a sign to really come in and be seen. Rao notes that there isn't a specific antiviral drug yet that targets RSV, though researchers are getting closer to finding one. 
Children's hospitals were pretty full when we spoke to Dr. Rao last month. What do they look like now? I think it's still very busy, but RSV seems to be easing a bit. Well, flu cases are on the rise. And there's another significant health issue making the news. Tell us about Strep A. That's right. Two children in Colorado have died of what's called Group A strep, uh, according to the state health department. These bacteria are commonly found in the throat or on the skin. Most infections are relatively mild, but it can cause much more severe illness. Both deaths were among young children from the Denver area. The last reported death in a pediatric patient with Group A strep in Colorado was uh, a few years ago in 2018. Given all of this, what should people be thinking about during the holiday season? Well, doctors say now is the time to get vaccinated for both flu and COVID-19. Wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, be careful in crowded indoor settings. Those are good places to wear a mask. And Dr. Rao from Children's Hospital says to take extra precautions with vulnerable folks. Those really young people, so the the babies and the infants, those older members of our community, pregnant women, as well as those with weakened immune systems. And what should people be doing to protect those who are vulnerable? Well, all those things we've been talking about for three years now, masking, filtering and ventilating the air, so cracking doors and windows, taking a COVID test before getting together. And here's a big one. If you're sick, stay home. You don't want to be the one bringing an extra helping of contagious virus to a holiday gathering. That wouldn't be fun at all. Definitely not. Thanks so much, John. You bet. John Daly is CPR's health reporter. He's keeping a close eye on COVID-19 and other illnesses now hitting the state. When we come back, eighth graders in Colorado are struggling in math. That's after remote learning during the pandemic. We'll head into the classroom and look at what it'll take to catch up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. When it comes to math, a lot of eighth graders in Colorado are struggling. That squares with a recent national report that shows the largest ever decline in student math skills. Why the large drop? And how will students catch up? CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine takes us to George Washington High School in Denver. 22 degrees. And we have to find this part right here, so it's two. And I'm guessing we put 22. Tedros Nigat is trying to find the length of a triangle side. He's going at it with gusto, but he's guessing a little bit. Math teacher Joe Bowles checks his work. You right now have the 2 over x equals 2 over 5. But, oh, I think you misread it. That's not supposed to be 22. That's just supposed to be 2. Other students are running into the same problems. Lots of simple mistakes. We did 40 over X, and it was X over 40 because this is the rise and this is the run, apparently. This is Bowles' integrated math 2 class. He knows these sophomores and freshmen missed a lot during the pandemic years, the crucial middle school math years. 
Those skills paved the way for higher level math. And for some people, slopes was the weakest spot, something they didn't master before. Slope is how steep a line is. The students are calculating slope ratios using a triangle's angles and sides. So the rise over run, the x over 15, is the opposite side over... It's typically a concept introduced in seventh grade, but Bowles needs to review it. Why were declines in math so steep? Have you ever tried learning math online when you were 13? Freshman Ray Bolinowski. You didn't really pay attention. You kind of just like did like the bare minimum of like, so you wouldn't get in trouble. And then you just like go back to sleep. (laughs) Kira Johnson says it was hard to know when to ask teachers questions. You have to see if they would pause and then you would unmute. But sometimes it's just like, screw it, I can't. Bolinowski says he's catching on in this ninth grade class, but there's some things like when we go back to stuff that like we did in sixth and seventh grade, I feel like I'm completely like lost. Students faced other challenges. Some had family members who got sick and died. Parents lost jobs. Kids like Sam Mraz moved around a lot. I ended up going to one school in sixth grade, a different one in seventh grade, and a different one in eighth grade. So it was like, I don't know, I probably missed a bit. Instead of trying to review two years of what kids may have lost, Bowles advocates, quote, just-in-time teaching strategies. We know that there's skills that the students are coming in that they're missing, but it's better if we can tie those skills to when they're going to be most applicable, when they're going to need them. Experts say more training for math teachers and higher-quality curriculum materials to aid in teaching just-in-time are needed right now. Also, attention to Colorado's math teacher shortage. After slope ratios, Bowles' class will move into something bigger, trigonometry. Bowles keeps his fast-paced class chock full of competition, games, Go for it. One minute. working in small groups, all hammering home the slope concept. Oh, you got this backwards. Bowles says group work is super important, especially for sophomores. He says they're the ones who were hardest hit. Almost their entire middle school was online. Really just getting them to to learn to talk to each other and to engage with each other and work with each other. That's been a a bigger struggle this year than it has been in the past for me. Bowles has noticed something else since the pandemic. Do you know what 75 times 2 is? That's 150. With a lot of students, there's a lack of math confidence, lack of self-efficacy. Some struggle with computation, like 9 times 7. They think that means they're bad at math. Bowles tells them to use the calculator. I don't want to let the multiplication of of 7 and 9 get in the way of you understanding this problem because that's not the crux of the problem. That's just a part of it, right? Some advocates worry students' current struggles with math will reduce the number of students going into STEM or into trades that require math. But Bowles looks forward, focusing on building students' skills from where they are. He uses math problems that help them understand why they're doing something. He frequently checks for understanding. Where are we at with the theta part? Great, awful, somewhere in the middle. Would more after-school tutors help kids catch up? Bowles says not exactly. There has to be buy-in first, right? Like, we can offer whatever we want, but if students aren't going to stick around for it, it's not going to support us. But, you know, I mean, if we had more bodies like that in the classroom, that would definitely help. He says the biggest help would come from parents taking an interest in what their kids are learning, asking about it, talking about it. That and staying positive about math, he says, would help students feel more engaged. I think we'll be okay. I'm optimistic, at least. This is one thing that we're going to get through. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News.
When we come back, some books to give as gifts or to read yourself this holiday season, all with Colorado and Western Connections. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Get the gear to spread the cheer this time of year and support the public radio service you hold dear. The CPR Shop, now open for all the Colorado public radio fans on your gift-giving list. Hats, t-shirts, a winter scarf, and would it be a public radio shop without a coffee mug? Come to shop.cpr.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It's the holidays when we turn to our experts for ideas about books to give as gifts. And of course, you can always find a comfortable chair, grab a cup of hot chocolate, and read them yourself. Jeannie Costello is general manager and book buyer at Maria's Bookshop in Durango. Deidre Oppelhans is co-owner of The Red Queen in Lafayette. They each picked some recent favorites, all with Colorado or Western ties. And welcome to you both. Hi, Andrea. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks so much. Deidre, let's start with you. You have a book of fiction to recommend. It's called Little Souls. It's set in Denver, and it's by Colorado author Sandra Dallas. What is it about? Well, Andrea, this book, Little Souls, is historical fiction. It takes place in Denver in 1918 during the uh, Spanish flu pandemic and uh, World War I. It's about two sisters who are living independently in Denver, and they're renting out their basement uh, rental unit to another family. And when the mother dies of the flu, they are thrust into caring for this small child, a girl named Dorothy. And it's a terrific book. Why did you like it so much? I liked it because, you know, it was really touching. I wasn't sure I was too excited to read about a, a, a pandemic. And um, and this book was was really a great story. I got sucked in right away. And it was touching, but not too heavy. The characters were really likable. You could really root for them. And there's just so much of Denver in the story. I felt like I really got a taste of what it'd be like to live in Denver in 1918. It was pretty fun. Okay, the book is Little Souls by Sandra Dallas. She's a Colorado author. And Jeannie Costello, you've brought another book of fiction. It's called Upgrade, and it's a thriller by Blake Crouch. The author's from your neck of the woods, Durango. And tell us about the book. Right, so Upgrade by Blake Crouch came out in July. And um, this is a high-tech suspense thriller, and it's set in the near future, and our main character is Logan Ramsey. And in the, the setup is that his mother was sort of the um, mastermind of this genetic modification that created a terrible famine. And so because of that, um, we live in a society now that is um, highly regulated. And Logan himself actually works for an agency that prevents and um, prevents Ill illegal gen genetic modification. So... At the beginning, he actually goes to a raid where um, there is an explosion and he is hospitalized and uh, he begins to realize that he is becoming mentally and physically um, more uh, enhanced uh, and realizes that somehow 
he himself has been upgraded with a genetic modification um, and not, in fact, accidentally. And mm -hmm. so this is a, a very exciting page turner. We're going through a story where he's trying to figure out how to control this uh, genetic modification. There are people out there who are trying to um, release it into the world. And so much of the um, setting is in the West from Colorado to Santa Fe to Montana. And um, yeah, it's an exciting read. Sounds fascinating. Jeannie Costello recommending Upgrade by Blake Crouch. Crouch lives in Durango. Moving on to nonfiction choices, Deidre, you recommend Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge. The book is by Ted Conover, who's from Colorado. Talk about this one. So this was an unusual choice for me. It's it's quite a new release. It's only been out, I believe, in the month of December. So uh, if it came out a little earlier, it would have been in November. So it's it's very current. Um, but it's doing very well. And it's really interesting because Ted Conover is known as an immersive author or immersive journalist. So he writes about things that he lives through. So he moved to the San Luis Valley in Colorado, which is one of the southernmost valleys that overlaps with New Mexico. Right. It's very rural. It's very flat. It's a prairie. And he lived there for the better part of four years off and on, and he ended up buying land there. Cheapland, Colorado, the title refers to a Google search that drew uh, a, uh, one of the people in this, in this um, nonfiction book to the area to set down some roots and to create a new life. The book is less an expose. It's more of a memoir about his experiences living in this really harsh environment. And it is a portrait of all these residents of the San Luis Valley who who you find out are really very diverse. It, it's not always what you expect. There is a lot of poverty. There is drug use. There are guns. And, and there is some volatility. But it's also very, very beautiful. And there's a diversity of wildlife. So it's it's very interesting to read about this rural outpost. And I've often thought that it would be interesting to know what it was like when you drive by and you see people out on the prairie, what it's like to live there and, and what brought them there. And this book answers that question. That's Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge by Ted Conover. Jeannie, you have a nonfiction book to recommend called Desert Chrome. It's by Kate Wilder. Tell us about that one. Um, yeah, so Catherine Wilder, um, she is a resident of the Dolores River Valley uh, in southwestern Colorado, um, and she is a passionate advocate um, for humane treatment of the wild uh, mustangs um, in wells that are throughout the West. Um, but in her memoir, she's at midlife, and she's she's it's grappling with um, grief and loss of a father, stepfather, a beloved. Um, adopted sister, and it creates this need for her to to find a new future for herself. And she discovers it in the Colorado Plateau, um, purchasing a ranch there, and then also retreating to a cabin that's adjacent to a wild mustang sanctuary. Mm -hmm. um, she falls in love with a stallion named Chrome, who is a leader of a small herd that lives near her. And she really empathizes with their experience um, shares a lot of, of what it must be like because they're, they really are herd and family animals and what it is like um, 
to have a helicopter roundup and to be separated from one another. She identifies with her own story um, as a young mother when she was separated from her children. She lost custody of them. And so in this second half of her life, she's grappling with how does she recreate herself? How does she reconnect with her family? And also, how does she live in a really rugged and uh, harsh landscape that she really loves in the desert um, while really creating so much connection and empathy with these Mustangs? That's Desert Chrome by Kate Wilder, and we're going to move back to fiction with Denver Noir. Uh, It's a collection of short stories edited by Cynthia Swanson. And Deirdre, these are all crime stories in one way or another. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. This is part of the uh, Noir anthology series, uh, and each um, edition takes place in a different city. This takes place in Denver, obviously. It's a great showcase for Colorado's multicultural writing scene featuring Black, Latino, Asian, and Indigenous authors. And um, it's just, it's a, it's a great collection. They're dark, they're moody, they're, it's a lot of crime. It's not cozy. And uh, Mysterious Detective loved it, loved it a lot. Jeannie, you have another work of fiction, the novel White Horse by Erica Worth. What's this book about and why do you like it? So uh, White Horse is a debut novel from Erica T. Worth, and it came out in November 1st, so only a month now. Um, Our hero of the story, Carrie James, she's an urban Indian. She lives in Denver. She um, self-describes as kind of more of the hangout and work at the bar and heavy metal type of Indian than the powwow Indian. Um, So at the setup of the story, a cousin gives her a family bracelet that belonged to her mother, who disappeared when she was two days old. And she finds herself haunted by her mother's ghost and very reluctantly begins to unravel her mother's story. She deals with mythological monsters, um, personal guilt over the loss of a friend to overdose. Uh, She pays homage to Stephen King. The trail leads uh, us through seeking out uh, clues in the Stanford Hotel, famous setting of the Stephen King's The Shining. Um, she is tough. Um, she wants to be independent from anyone, not need anybody, but she becomes connected in spite of herself as she learns um, the story of her mother. That's White Horse by Erica T. Worth. Um, we just have a little bit of time for some books for kids. Deidre, you have a book for middle grade readers. It's called Alone by Megan E. Friedman. She's a Boulder author. Tell us about this one. That's right. This actually was a 2022 Colorado Book Award winner for children's writing. It's written in verse. First mm-hmm. book I ever read in verse. I wasn't sure I was going to like it. I loved it. It was engrossing. It was thought-provoking. It was it was intense. 12-year-old Maddie has lied about her location, where she is. Her parents don't know where she is. She wakes up. Everyone's gone. She's completely alone and now must figure out how to survive with no uh, electricity, no cell phone, nothing. She's on her own. Just in the last few minutes or seconds here, um, Jeannie, you have a book for younger readers, age four to seven. It's called Forever Cousins. It's by Laurel Goodluck. The author lives in New Mexico, illustrated by Jonathan Nelson, lives in Colorado. Quickly, what's this one about? So, Cousins Kara and Amanda are best friend cousins. Um, Kara's family moves away back to the reservation, and they're really sad. Uh, they're going to miss each other. And when it's time for the family reunion, they're both worried about uh, whether they will still be friends. 
So what does friendship mean when you aren't living in the same place? Uh, and um, when do you know that you will be forever cousins? Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks. Deidre Oppelhans is co-owner of The Red Queen in Lafayette. Jeannie Costello is general manager and book buyer at Maria's Bookshop in Durango. We've been getting their recommendations for holiday books. Businesses in Colorado are hiring for the holidays. For many of them, it's the busiest month of the year. CPR's Sarah Mulholland reports. It's the end of the shift at Amazon's delivery facility just east of Denver in Aurora. Workers are getting the final packages of the day ready to load onto an army of vans that will take the boxes to their final destination. So really, it is the month between Black Friday and Christmas is just absolutely crazy. That's Madison Olson, the company's site lead at the facility. She oversees the roughly 2,000 people that make it run. It's the largest Amazon distribution center in Colorado, and it has the feel of a massive airplane hangar. Olson, who has a background in aerospace engineering, says about 20 huge Boeing passenger jets could fit inside the facility. Today we processed 105,000. We'll process anywhere up to 120, 130,000 packages every single day out of this building. That's holiday volume, which Olson says is about 30 percent higher than during non-peak times of the year. There are about 150 seasonal workers at her location that were hired on to deal with all those extra packages. I knew um, to make sure we were hiring early, so we started hiring for now six weeks ago. So really, you know, six weeks, eight weeks ago is when we started getting folks onboarded to make sure we could have them trained and ready to go for the holiday season. This year's holiday shopping bonanza is coming at a weird moment for the economy. Stubborn inflation is chipping away at paychecks, but consumer spending is still really strong. And while the Federal Reserve's effort to tame inflation by raising interest rates has started to slow some sectors of the economy, especially the housing market, overall, the job market is still growing. And that means there's still more jobs than job seekers. That should point to companies staging aggressive hiring pushes for the holidays. But some big retailers like Walmart and Macy's actually reduced their seasonal hiring nationally by a lot this year. And so what's happening in Colorado? An Amazon spokesperson says their statewide seasonal hiring is down slightly this year compared to last year. Meanwhile, UPS says its hiring in Colorado is about the same as last year. Jeff Blodorn is UPS's Colorado Director of Human Resources. We're going to be adding just under 2,500 people between our Commerce City, our Inglewood, and our Aurora facility. Those are our three largest facilities in the state. As far as pay goes, Blodorn says that hasn't really changed much either, even though a lot of companies have substantially boosted wages to attract workers for the past year or so. Last year for drivers, uh, we paid twenty nine seventy five an hour. This year we're paying thirty. So when I say similar, uh, they're very close year over year. He says the company does still have some open seasonal spots in major metropolitan areas like Denver. We're going to need to continue to add these workers uh, to help deliver the packages, help to load the package cars. We'll probably be hiring up until mid December. According to CNM Boober, an economist with job listing website ZipRecruiter, one of the toughest positions to fill these days during the holidays is drivers. 
we still need a lot of truck drivers. There's a big truck driver shortage in the U.S. right now. So even if the businesses will slow down, we still need to catch up with the higher needs in those occupations. State economist Ryan Gedney says it's a little too soon to say how the holiday hiring season will ultimately shake out in Colorado. It's just too early. Gedney says the picture will become clearer when Colorado reports its November employment numbers. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. For more on seasonal hiring, you can read our story and see photos from inside the Amazon Distribution Center at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Among the most popular variety of Christmas tree is a native of the Rocky Mountains, the Colorado Blue Spruce. Loved for its classic conical shape and silvery blue needles that don't shed easily after being cut, it can grow to more than 130 feet and was declared the state tree in 1939. It also grows beyond our borders, so even though many of the national Christmas trees displayed at the U.S. Capitol have been blue spruce, only one came from Colorado. The state's other contributions to the people's tree, as it's also called, were Engelman spruces. Tradition has it each year's tree takes a tour around its home state before heading to D.C. In 2020, it was a 55-foot-tall Engelman spruce that started its journey east near Telluride, towed in a giant cradle and decorated with thousands of handcrafted ornaments from the people of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Earlier in the show, we talked about some of the latest research into COVID-19, but the virus isn't the only challenge doctors face during the pandemic. As they learned more about COVID, protocols changed, and people started to question the guidance. Science itself came under scrutiny. It was an issue at the forefront of this year's Aspen Ideas Festival. Here's CPR Audio Innovations producer Emily Williams. The pandemic has been a complicated time for science. We've seen big scientific successes, like the fastest new vaccine development in history. But even while science was saving lives, more people were losing faith in it. A lot of Americans protested mask mandates. Are you going to allow the government to tell you you have to wear a mask? Refused vaccines. Nearly every patient with COVID symptoms they're taking to the hospital is unvaccinated. And lost trust in our biggest scientific institutions. A big question facing the CDC, though, is how to regain your trust following years of public debate over their guidance. Dr. Ashish Jha has thought a lot about this problem. He's in charge of the White House's response to COVID-19. He says scientists have missed something big during this pandemic. I think we underappreciated the level of mistrust that exists, and we also underestimated the amount of misinformation and disinformation that's out there. I sort of think of it as we kind of got the biological science right, but we didn't get the social science right. Ja spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. He says scientists should be thinking more about why they didn't get the social science right. And he has some thoughts on how scientists can be better communicators. Improving the way scientists talk about science starts at the most fundamental definition of what science is. So part of the conversation we need to have is 
how do we understand science? Science has become this sense of like, this is truth, it's a destination. Science is a journey, right? Science is a process. Science is how we figure out how the world works. People often think that science gives us an answer. Science usually gives us a way to think about the problem. And trusting the science is about trusting the process by which you come up with an answer. So you get 100 scientists, you're gonna get 150 different opinions, that's totally fine. The thing that makes it, makes it coherent and makes it workable is that they're all taking a similar approach to solving or figuring out a problem. And that, I think, has not been clearly communicated to people. The people Zhao was speaking to at Aspen Ideas were asked if they believe in science. And just about everyone raised their hand. Those people are still the norm. But the portion of Americans who don't believe in science has grown since COVID to nearly one in four people, according to a recent Pew poll. And in some ways, seeing trust in science go down during a global pandemic is puzzling. So the reason why I think most people in this room trust science generally is because it is the most powerful tool we have for solving complex human problems. It's not the only tool we have, but it is the most powerful. You're faced with a global pandemic, how do you counter a global pandemic? You build vaccines, you build therapeutics. How do you do those things? That's what the scientific process gives you. So it's fundamental for solving human problems. But then the question is, why are one in four people not so convinced that it's so good for them? That is puzzling. And my kind of mental model, but I'd be curious what other people think, is that we in the scientific community have not done a good enough job of explaining to people how science benefits them in their day-to-day -day life. That we have not done a good enough job connecting the dots between what science produces and the problems, the real life problems that people face. You know, in the past, if you did a, uh, an experiment, you wrote up your paper, you submitted it to a journal, and it would be published six months later. And in this pandemic, everything went to preprints. And so the turnaround time of people building on everybody else's work just accelerated multiple fold and that was a major reason why we got vaccines and treatments. And all of that was scientists trusting each other. It's interesting to me that at the moment where there was more trust among scientists than we've ever seen before, we struggled to connect the benefits of all that scientific progress to their lives. And that is a problem. And I think we need to go back and do more thinking about why that happened. Ja has tried to figure out what we could have done better. He says these trust issues go further back than the start of the pandemic. Faith in big institutions was already declining before COVID. There are a lot of Americans who feel abandoned by our institutions. And I think those individuals are much more susceptible to misinformation, to politicization of basic public health tools. And then what happened in this pandemic is I think a lot of it got accelerated and a lot of it got exploited to make it much worse whether they be big companies, whether you see universities or government or anybody else, and you feel like they're not in it for your interest, that you don't see the benefit in your life to the challenges you have, you are far less likely to trust those institutions. And then I think it is incumbent on people in those institutions, in my last job at university, in my current job in government, to help people understand how these institutions are serving a public good. And if you can do that, 
then I think people are far less susceptible to the misinformation about those institutions that follow. You know, if someone shared information, misinformation to me about my mom, I'm not gonna buy it. But if it's someone you don't trust, someone you don't know, and then you hear misinformation, you're much more susceptible to that. So I think building trust in institutions is a huge part of combating misinformation. Another part of combating misinformation comes back to how scientists are communicating. Ja says the pandemic showed him how important it is for scientists to get comfortable talking about uncertainty. And Ja says there's a reason why scientists need to give people some kind of answer, even if that answer is, I don't know yet. Here's the, the lesson, the learning from the pandemic, is misinformation thrives in vacuums. So something happens, and people want to try to understand what just happened. We've got a new variant. Omicron just popped up. What does this mean? And there is a period of time where scientists want to say, give us three months, we're going to sort all this out, and we'll come back to you. Well, during those three months, there are plenty of people who are going to fill that information void. And I actually think, as public health scientists, it's irresponsible to leave information voids empty. And so what I have tried to do, and what I have encouraged my colleagues to do, is go out there, be very honest about what you know and don't know. So don't overstate what you know. Explain what you don't know. But give people your first impression. So I remember the morning after Omicron was identified in South Africa, I was on TV, and people were like, is this a problem? And the answer was, it was an honest answer, we don't know. However, here's what worries me about it. And here's how we're going to find out. And so you give people a roadmap, because it's that uncertainty that really bothers people. You give them your first draft, you give them your judgment, and you explain that your first draft may need editing over time. And I don't know. I, I think most people are pretty receptive to that. Scientists hate that stuff. They're like, I want to get the right answer before I go talk about it. But the pandemic moves way too fast for that. Scientists could do a better job of sharing their first drafts and explaining how science helps us in our daily lives. But there's also something you can do. Because if you know how scientists should be communicating, we can use that knowledge to find and share trusted scientific sources. Ja says to look for the experts who are talking about science as a process. If you're trying to assess is somebody really an expert, you want to see them say things like, I don't know. You want them not only to change their mind, but explain why they changed their mind. That's actually, I think, how you build credibility. And for people who are trying to figure out, is this person a real expert, you actually want people to change their views as facts are changing. If you see somebody who's been saying exactly the same thing for the last two years, I'd be pretty suspicious of that. Dr. Ashish Jha spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Jha continues to serve as the COVID-19 response coordinator for the White House. You can hear Jha's full Aspen Ideas session, featuring questions from journalist Perry Peltz and members of the audience, at aspenideas.org. 
Dr. Ashish Jha is a White House COVID-19 response coordinator. CPR Audio Innovations producer Emily Williams put together that segment. You can hear more talks from speakers like Jha in the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. Find it wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.